Hey everyone, my name is Jonathan Brook, and this is Eyes Only. Jodie Foster is in a place that feels like home. She is surrounded by students, staff, and Yale professors who are soon going to become her buffer. She has spent her whole life in the limelight. She is free of it now, an experience that has brought her a sense of liberating joy. The control and professionalism she has had to maintain her whole life was self-imposed and alienating. Now she is in a place where she is able to make mistakes, to have real friends, an opportunity to be seen, not just viewed. No longer the object of others to scrutinize and admire. Yet, looming in the background, a cascading series of events is chasing her. Events out of her control. A tidal wave of political violence and twisted infatuation that is not her fault. As she skips across campus holding the hand of her best friend, she hears the breaking news. The news that the president has just been shot. If you have never seen the warning signs of a tsunami, the receding water would not register as a threat. She goes about her day, hearing news of the shooting. Jody does not see any signs that her life is about to change. It's not that she doesn't care. Not that she is numb to the violence. It just has nothing to do with her. It is an issue for men wearing expensive suits who run the world. That night, she returns to her dorm room. Her roommate opens the door and says the haunting name. The name of her tormentor. John Hinckley. That campus that was her buffer from her life of fame would soon pull together to further shelter her, fighting back the flood of journalists and camera crews which would soon descend upon them. Upon her. Jody's dorm room telephone rings. The call is not from a friend. It is not about the play she is scheduled to perform in. It isn't a guy calling to ask her out on a date. It is her dean. He tells her not to be upset, that her pictures and address have been found on the arrested shooter. Jody begins to shake. Tears well up in her eyes. For the first time in her life, she feels like she has lost control. The separation from the world she has worked so hard to build is shattered. Her chance to escape the public eye has been stolen. Stolen by a man with a dangerous obsession. A dangerous obsession with her. The FBI are waiting to speak with her. She tells her dean to give her a few minutes. She runs to her best friend's room. Inside, with the door shut behind her, she cries. Her friend stares at her, unsure of what is going on, as Jody's tears turn to laughter. Hollow, uncontrollable laughter. It's too funny, too bizarre, too painful. Her body starts convulsing, jerking painfully. She is crying for herself. She describes this moment in her own words. Me, the unwilling victim, the one who would pay in the end, 
the one who paid all along, and yes, keeps paying. That kind of pain doesn't go away. It's something you never understand, forgive, or forget. It is a pain that can never be healed with a kiss from your mother's lips. Or an everything's okay. Everything's not okay. It's not. But I didn't have time to feel it then. There were things to be done, secrets to keep. I was supposed to be tough, like cowboys, like diplomats, like unaffected actresses. Not because anyone asked me to, but because I wanted to show them that I was strong. So she does what she has done her whole life. She puts on an act, an act of survival. Shadowing her are men with radios, people there to defend her, security guards on rotating shifts escorting her from now on. They protect her from physical harm. It is up to her to protect herself internally, to tell her truth. Against the wishes of her lawyers and administration, Jody writes a press statement herself. She organizes her own press conference and tells her side of the story. In Baton Rouge, Louisiana, the controversial televangelist Jimmy Swaggart receives a strange letter. One that would normally be dismissed by his staff. What his organization called kook letters are crazy letters. His church and corresponding magazine receive over 300,000 letters a day, yet this one stands out. It reads, Ronald Reagan will be shot to death and this country turned to the left. Scrawled in felt-tip pen, the letter is postmarked on March 25th. If the letter had arrived any earlier, it would have most likely found its way into a landfill. Instead, the letter would soon be in the hands of the FBI. The threat arrived in Jimmy Swaggart's mailbox on March 30th, within hours of John Hinckley Jr. opening fire. The timing appears planned, yet John Hinckley's actions were not. Hinckley had not known that the president would be outside the Hilton Hotel until the day of the shooting. Investigators would later determine that the letter was not written by Hinckley. At just past 11 p.m., nine hours after Ronald Reagan was shot, two Secret Service agents approach a home in Linden, Michigan. They're there to apprehend a man who has threatened the president's life. A man who hours earlier had placed a call to a long-distance phone operator. The man they are about to encounter has made his wishes to kill the president clear. In the front lawn of his home, James Anthony Vincent greets the officers. He is agitated. He yells for his grandfather to get his shotgun. Within minutes, the encounter escalates. James Vincent takes a karate stance and attacks the agents. For 20 minutes, a fight ensues, a fight that would leave both agents injured. Yet ultimately, they take James Anthony Vincent into custody. 
The very next day, on March 31st, 21-year-old Douglas Bellomi makes a decision that will change his life forever. A decision to make his feelings towards the president known. He writes a letter to Ronald Reagan stating his wishes to finish the job that Hinckley started. Agents soon arrive to arrest him. In interviews with law enforcement, Douglas Bellomi stands by his threats. He would ultimately be sentenced to four years behind bars for his actions. On April 1st, two days after Hinckley opened fire, the police stop a woman. Mary Frances Carrier is arrested on charges of trespassing, resisting arrest, and harassment. She is transient, homeless, and living out of her car. What they found on her would change the course of her encounter. On her person, they find a letter containing threats to Ronald Reagan, including the phrase, murder the president. During her interview with law enforcement, she shared her feelings toward Ronald Reagan by saying, the president should be murdered. Yes, I wrote that. Yes, I threatened the president. It is too bad Hinckley wasn't successful. He deserved what he got. If need be, I would shoot him. On April 6th, seven days after Jerry Parr saved the president's life, Secret Service agents arrested 58-year-old Stephen E. Siege, a kitchen employee at a boarding school in Pennsylvania. He had told a colleague that he wanted to go to Washington, D.C. and finish the job, that if he was in Washington in Hinckley's place, he would not have missed. In the two weeks following Reagan's shooting, the United Press International reported that there were at least 300 threats to the president's life. A deluge of threats and promises of violence. Agents all across the nation working overtime to track down and subdue threats to the president. The violence inflicted on everyone in front of that hotel opened the floodgates of hate. The concept of a copycat and the behavior surrounding that profile would become top priority. Gavin DeBecker is a specialist on security for the rich and the famous. He states that at the time, his office had 4,000 people under assessment. They have developed a profile, a whole group of people that are similar in nature in regards to their pre-incident indicators. Factors that are part of their lives before their attack. They are unsettled and unhappy. They find themselves traveling somewhere to find themselves unhappy and traveling again. He says... You can see this behavior in almost every scenario where a public figure is attacked. This society is focusing on famous people and making celebrities with a fury that has never existed before. He goes on to say that you and I maybe can draw the line between what is appropriate and inappropriate in terms of that relationship, but mentally ill people cannot effectively edit out the inappropriate against that background. We have to see ourselves in them as well, because there is an acceptable level of idolatry. All of us have idols, but what is a mild drug for some is a poison for others.
There is an old adage in theater, a belief that the performers should not notice the crowd. Yet Jodie Foster is a film star. She notices every light change, every movement, the change of expression on the audience's faces. As she moves across the stage, performing her well-rehearsed lines, the trauma of the past week sits heavy on her heart. The media storm that had descended on Yale had taken her by force. She had looked past flashing cameras at the faces of the people behind them. They are intrusive, digging into her life, trying to get the next soundbite or image of the nation's top sensationalized story. She has become their story, a narrative she is forced to be a part of. What she can see on their faces looks like fear. Behind their video cameras and their notepads, they look scared, almost terrified, perhaps guilty. She understands that they are just doing their jobs. She describes how she felt. I knew that these were the faces, the uncomfortable, fascinated eyes that I would have to meet for the rest of my life. These same eyes are staring at her now as she performs in a play that she was nervous about before the world showed up at her door. She has grown up around cameras, but after the last week, she now has flash phobia. The sound of a camera shutter is traumatizing. Standing in the doorways of the theater, men frisk the audience on their way in. In these walls, no cameras are allowed, a place where Jody is safe from them. The part of her performance is coming up, the most vicious part of her character's lines. In the many theories behind theater acting, a prevalent one exists. Acting oneself as another. Drawing on personal experience in the portrayal of the character. Jodi experiences this as she hears a sound she knows better than her own heartbeat. From within the crowd, someone clicks a motorized drive camera. The villainous sound is coming from center left. Jodi focuses her eyes on the spot. Never missing a beat in her lines, her anger rises as the pain of her situation pours out into her character. That is when she sees him, sitting right in the spot, a bearded man with his hands folded over his lap, his eyes transfixed upon her. He isn't the photographer, yet there's something unnerving about his emotionless stare, something she doesn't trust. He becomes the sole target of her verbal abuse, her character's biting insults. Jody pours her own intensity into her character and out onto the strange, unsettling man. Edward Michael Richardson sits, his gaze transfixed upon Jody Foster, the object of his obsession, the reason he has come to Yale, the reason he is going to kill himself. The reason he is going to kill her. Edward Richardson's idolatry is not a mild drug. It has become a poison. A poison that has led him to make a death pact in his head with the young actress performing in front of him. Ten feet is the distance he needs to cover. Ten feet to jump on stage and end Jody's life. And then his own. 
he had not been the one who snuck in a camera. He instead has snuck in a loaded revolver. Jodie Foster has no idea the danger she is facing. This is not her first night of doing this performance. It is her best, and the crowd knows it. She can feel it. Richardson's plan is slipping away from him. He cannot go through with it. She is too pretty in his eyes. Too pretty to kill. The show ends and Jody walks next to her man. The endearing term she has given the bodyguards protecting her. Her man's radio squeaks as he escorts her to her residence. She feels safe with him. The sound of his radio has become a welcoming noise. Michael Edward Richardson turns his sights on a much more well-protected target. From his hotel room in the Sheraton Plaza Hotel, Richardson writes a letter. At the same hotel that Hinckley had stayed at when he was stalking Jody, Richardson writes the words, I depart now for Washington, D.C. to bring to completion Hinckley's reality. Ultimately, Ronald Reagan will be shot to death in this country turned to the left, a letter that closely resembles the one Jimmy Swaggart had received. Hinckley was not the one who sent that threat to the Reverend five days before he opened fire. It had been a note written by Richardson, a threat that he was now planning on completing. He is leaving New Haven, Connecticut to go to Washington, D.C. to finish the job that Hinckley had started. Jody longs to be a pro, a term used in the film business. Not for the movie cameras, not to win awards. She describes the meaning behind her desire. This was my first life crisis, and I had to show the world that I could take it like a pro. That's what they call you when you make it to the set at 5.30 a.m. and don't complain. It is a fierce desire for her to not show the cracking in her armor. Yet the attacks continue. The fight is just beginning. Slid underneath her door is a threat. She wakes up to find a note, a vicious death threat. The sudden stomach-wrenching realization that there is another Hinkley out there, another person who has gone out of their way to target her, sinks in. Jody picks the note up, being careful to only touch the edges. She wastes no time in contacting the authorities. Written on the note are the chilling words. R.R. must die. He, John Hinckley, has told me so in a prophetic dream. Sadly, though, your death is also required. You will suffer the same fate as Reagan and others in his fascist regime. You cannot escape. We are a wave of assassins throughout the world. These words throw the Secret Service into full gear, working nonstop to track down the identity of another political assassin. Jodie Foster walks to English class. It has been a day since her life had been threatened again. Her mother, frantic to protect her, had begged her to leave the country with her. Yet she had stayed. 
She feels safe with her bodyguards. They arrive five minutes early to class. As they stand there, her man's walkie-talkie squeaks. He looks concerned. He tells her to sit in the corner and not to move for the entire class, that he'll be in the next room. Jody describes what happened next. My man came to me as it finally ended. He has been apprehended. Apprehended, I thought. Okay. Apprehended. Who? His name was Richardson. He was from Pennsylvania. And he had a beard. The police and Secret Service had worked nonstop tracking down the letter writer, found him, followed him to New Haven Station, where he had boarded a bus bound for D.C. He was picked up at Port Authority in New York with a loaded gun, hoping to fulfill his threat to shoot the president. I was too pretty to kill, he had said, as he was arrested. He saw me in my play and simply couldn't do it. The bearded man in center left? Ten feet from death? Ten feet from a loaded pistol held by a sick and perhaps insane man? Ten feet. Then it hit me. It felt like a ton of steel dropping from the top of a 30-story building. Death. So simple. So elementary. So near. Pulling a trigger is as easy as changing the TV channel with remote control. In this moment, something changed for Jody. She describes it as a great change that came over her. She began perceiving death in the most mundane but distressing way. The letters did not stop. Neither did the threats on her life. The misplaced and awful hate from strangers. She received bullets in the mail. She describes how being photographed felt like being shot. She has become the source of obsession for a media machine that cranks out numbers and destroys lives. She would have to leave movie sets by hiding on the floor of the vehicle to avoid the paparazzi. Movie sets with big name actors, yet she would be the one hiding from the spotlight. She tells a story about being in a crowded cafe one day. She had just come off the movie set of Svengali, a film she was acting in. Sick with laryngitis and suffering from a broken clavicle, she has lost her voice. Four inches in front of her nose, a bright flash erupts as someone takes her photo. The paparazzi man holding the camera is laughing at her pain. She chases him down the street, ripping at his jacket and punching him until she slips on ice and falls hard landing on her broken clavicle. All she can do is lay there sobbing, in intense pain, as the cameraman runs away yelling, I got her. This is the life of a victim of circumstances out of their control. The life where strangers stop her on the street and say, Aren't you the girl who shot the president? Today, if you walk past Jodie Foster on the street, it is unlikely that you would think of the name John Hinckley Jr. You would most definitely not think of Edward Michael Richardson. You might vaguely remember she was connected to something to do with Reagan. Instead, the typical reaction from a stranger passing her on the street would be a combination of starstruck interest or just admiration. At the least, the feeling of encountering someone significant. The average person when they see Jodie Foster connects her name to a movie they loved or at least one they recognized. 
to a career filled with so many accomplishments and awards that it would take too long for me to list them. No one did that for her. She did it for herself. It is clear, as someone on the outside looking in, that Jodie Foster never allowed these delusional men in insane circumstances to define her. In December of 1982, less than two years after Reagan was shot, Jodie wrote an op-ed for Esquire magazine titled, Why Me? She let the world into her life and what she went through and was still going through. As the reader, it is easy to pick up her strength and determination, her willingness to keep going even though it appeared like a long and hard journey ahead of her. In her op-ed, she makes a statement, a statement she is making at the beginning of that long and hard journey, and possibly the best place to end this story. This is the why of the struggling woman scribbling down explanations, sensations, incantations in the night. This is the why of poetry when a phrase bursts through and pierces my control. This is the why they never saw. They never see. They will never see. This is my why. My final and ultimate cry. This one's for me. Thanks for listening. <laughs>